You're listening to the I Love You Keep Going podcast with George Haas. For more information, please visit our website at www.metagroup.org. That's www.metagroup.org. So welcome, everybody. This is I Love You Keep Going. It's uh, December 15th, 2022 at 7.41 p.m. Pacific uh, time. And uh, what I wanted to talk about tonight was uh, emotional regulation in relationship uh, to mentalizing. So let's shift into that topic. Um, we've been talking in the last uh, few weeks about mentalizing, uh, and we've been talking about it in terms of uh, the early part of mentalizing that develops in the first three years of life directly in relationship to the caregivers, primary caregivers. It's in the early part of it, it's totally dyadic with whoever your primary caregiver is. Uh, you're presenting yourself authentically, uh, needing some kind of care, don't even know what that is. Hopefully you have a caregiver who's sensitively attuned to you, who empathetically connects to you, who understands uh, your language, mirrors that back to you and explains to you what it is so that you can begin to identify it, and then responds by taking care of you in the way that you need to be taken care of so that you have the sense that you have an effect on the world. Uh, in Buddhism, what we mean by the world is other people. There's the self and there's other people. That's uh, self and world. If you have a sense that you can express yourself completely authentically, that somebody bothers to, to understand what you're trying to communicate to them, and then responds in a way that's meaningful to you, you develop a sense of confidence, a sense of agency, a sense of capability, because you have the experience of your gestures, your authentic expressions, producing the care that you need so that you can uh, survive and thrive in the world. Uh, and so that really is the cycle of, of developing secure attachment, that you're, you express yourself, somebody sensitively enough attunes to you, they decode what you're expressing, they mirror it back to you. So you have, as a way of validating the expression, and then they take care of you in a way that matches what your expression is, so that loop completes. <clears throat> in childhood experiences where that doesn't actually happen in that way, we begin to develop different mentalizing strategies. If your authentic expression is rejected by your caregivers and you have to do it in a way that makes sense to them, then you learn that. That would be what an avoidant child learns, that their authentic expression doesn't work, but if they express themselves in the way that the caregiver wants to, them to express it, they can reliably get what they want. It's not an authentic expression. Uh, it's not a, a genuine expression, but it does serve to get what, what the child wants. In a, uh, where the child faces an unpredictable caregiver, where the caregiver sometimes shows up, sometimes doesn't show up, sometimes is absent, sometimes is harmful, 
then the child doesn't develop that sense of uh, surety about what to do and they just become uh, expressive one thing after another without really monitoring too much because it doesn't make any sense to monitor it because there's no predictability in the way that the caregiver responds so there's nothing to learn from the monitoring of it <clears throat> and then if the caregiver is harming and this frightens the child and the child learns to hide from the experience of the caregiver it's not all making sense We don't, when we're born, have any real understanding of our emotions. We don't know the name of the emotions. Uh, we don't know how to regulate the emotions. And we learn this from the caregivers that we have in the way that they help us to regulate our emotional states when we're little. And then um, when we move into the mid-childhood period, what the, the rules of the household are in terms of what expression is acceptable and what expression is not acceptable and then when you go out into the into the adult world you learn uh, <clears throat> based on those earlier experiences how to use emotion in adult relationships so that you can succeed at uh, getting the things that you want the way that you learn what an emotion is in the early part is that you express yourself your caregiver sensitively attunes to you empathetically connects to you identifies the emotional experience that you're having mimics the emotional experience that you're having on their face and then naming it for you and in this process over and over again we begin to associate these body sensations with that facial expression and that name, and then that experience that we're having, we know from the reflection of the caregiver that that's what the experience is. So there isn't a universal sadness. There's the sadness of your family group. There isn't a universal joy. There's a joy of your family group. That's what you learn. <clears throat> there are 220 words in the English language that describe discrete emotional states, and it's a low, lowish number for languages. Some, some languages have vastly more uh, descriptions. But we don't learn the 220. Uh, we learn the vocabulary of our family system, so it depends how rich the emotional life of your family was or how restricted the emotional life was in your family system. Uh, so that you un you have a sense of what uh, uh, emotions are. And then also the strategies for regulating differ. Secure people tend to have access to the emotion. They tend to have it uh, embodied, so they have the sensations in the body. They have the cognitive understanding of what that emotion is. And they also have regulation strategies that are pretty effective in regulating those experiences. Uh, dismissing adults tend to not have an embodied sense of their emotion because the strategy that they learned for regulating emotion was to suppress conscious awareness of them. So they're not embodied. And depending on how far down the dismissing uh, strategy you are, you may not even have a cognitive awareness of emotion. 
the problem with the, the suppression of emotion is that uh, empathy is an, empath an empathetic, the empathetic experience of someone else is emotional. And if you suppress emotion, you also suppress uh, a conscious awareness of, of the empathetic experience of someone else. So in some sense, you're blind to their uh, emotional experience. When we talk about empathy, we talk about the first level, which is this visceral response to witnessing someone else's physical or emotional pain. The second level is cognitively understanding that facial expressions and body language are reflective of certain internal emotional states. The third one is the embodied uh, feeling of somebody else's emotion that you generate in your body. <clears throat> so empathetic emotion of the other person. In Buddhism, we would call it compassionate empathy. The fourth then is comparing what somebody says they're going to do with what they do and comparing what they say they're not going to do with what they don't do, right? That's a, a full stack. In uh, um, insecure uh, experiences, um, that isn't actually what happens. And so when we talk about the mentalizing aspect, we want to begin to develop uh, a clear availability of our emotional experience. So dismissing people uh, may not have an embodied sense of emotion, but they may also not have a cognitive sense of emotion. When you, when you think about the utility of, uh, of the empathetic experience, most of us will compare what somebody's, uh, the second level, somebody's facial expressions and body language with the third level, the felt sense of them. And if, they're, if they match, we will believe them. And if they don't match, we'll think that they're not telling us the truth. That's the mechanism that we have for that. Secure people also compare what people do to what they say they're going to do and what they feel like. But if you don't have access to emotions, then you can't do that. Most insecure uh, attachment, attached people or disorganized attached people split off the, the what people say they're going to do with what they actually do piece because they can't sum up the the experience in the households they grow up with if they actually uh, track what people say they're going to do and what they actually do because it doesn't match up very well and kids need to have a sense of a good capable parent so that they're not anxious about what's going to happen to them is that making sense <clears throat> um so if you're dismissing and you don't have an embodied sense of emotion and you don't really recognize facial expressions or body language very well, then you rely on what people say to you about what their feeling states are. And if they stop telling you what their feeling states are, you, you don't know what's happening with them. That's one of the, the, the most fearful places for dismissing people is when the person stops giving them the information that they need to operate in the relationship because they can't detect it in another way. 
preoccupied people get so focused on the other person that actually the empathetic experience of somebody else becomes their dominant emotional experience and their own emotional experience becomes secondary. The problem with that is if they're not actually in physical proximity to the person, they lose the empathetic connection and then they lose uh, contact with what they experience as their emotional life. So it feels very depersonalizing. It can be uh, terrifying or painful, uh, surprisingly painful for a preoccupied person to be separated from the person that they, they focus on because they're, they're disconnected from their, what they experience as their emotional life and uh, are left with their own emotional experience, which is dysregulated typically because they don't regulate it. Uh, they're very good at regulating the empathetic experience so that the other person feels well-regulated, but their own emotional life is not attended to well enough that they feel regulated. Disorganized people tend to socially isolate themselves out of fearfulness of being harmed in relationships. And so they're often in states of distress as a result of that, because we're herd animals. We're built biologically to be in complex social groups and to regulate our emotions in physical proximity to other people. There's just no way for us living in human bodies to operate uh, completely isolated from other human beings. You'll, uh, if you follow uh, uh, prisons at all, you'll, you'll understand that solitary confinement is considered the most severe punishment. And it's also in many places considered torturous because of the way that human beings are designed to be in proximity in the emotional experience of other people and to be regulated emotionally by other people. Is that making sense? So when we talk about uh, expanding mentalizing into emotional regulation, what we want is to be able to have really good clarity about our own emotional states, really good clarity about the empathetic experience of other people, and then also to develop uh, useful strategies for regulating our emotional states. If we uh, look at the framework in which people learn to do this, we're all born autoregulators. And then if somebody comes well enough, we, we reorient to be externally regulated by our caregivers. And if the caregiver is reliable enough, we enter into a collaborative relationship with them where they teach us how to regulate our own emotions. We learn the lessons of emotional regulation. We uh, develop the capacity to then provide that emotional regulation for ourselves, which then supports our ability to explore things that have meaning to us. But in a collaborative relationship, uh, we uh, attempt to develop as much um, capacity to regulate ourselves as we can. We want to be brilliant at it, really, so that we can go off and do our solo exploration. 
but at the same time understand that it's easy to get sideswiped and not be able to bring yourself back into balance. And so you have to have a secure base, is what John Bowlby called it, of people who can help you re-regulate. And in secure relationships, you come and go from the regulating base to explore. And you don't worry so much about taking risks in your exploration because you know if you get completely discombobulated, you can come rushing back to the people that make up your secure base and that they'll catch you and that they're capable of bringing you back into emotional balance and then encouraging you to go back out and explore. That's that collaborative dynamic with the exploration piece in it. If that didn't happen for you when you were a kid, then what we need to do is begin to look at the deficits that you have so that you can begin skills training to build up those deficits. I think that one of the things that happens in a meditation practice that isn't focused in this way is that we tend to gravitate toward meditating around the skill sets that we already have because we it, it feels good and we feel accomplished in being able to do that. And we sort of avoid the deficit areas because it's painful and difficult and, and uh, uh, requires a lot of attention. And so we want to have that balance. Focusing uh, on the deficits so that we can really build up the skill set that we can then move in the direction of secure functioning. If you look at, um, I like to talk about Dunbar numbers. Robin Dunbar is a researcher who, who studied uh, the nature of human relationships and what an ideal constellation of human relationships would be so that you have a, a way of tracking all of this and understanding what uh, how you're doing in this way, right? So he talks about A, B relationships, which are above the line, which means you uh, tell people that are above the line everything, which doesn't mean you uh, everything that happens to you, but when you're with them, you give an uh, authentic expression that's complete about your experience of the present moment. C's and D's, uh, E relationships, um, are below the line, so you're not obligated to sit to be complete in your expression to them. Uh, you can you can express some things to them. One of the things about A and B relationships is that uh, people who you uh, afford that much trust have demonstrated to you that they're trustworthy. One of the things that insecure people do is they rush into relationships because they can't regulate the experience of abandonment terror. And so they overcommit too quickly before somebody really demonstrates that they're reliable. And then they're in a relationship where they've overcommitted to somebody who isn't reliable. It maps onto the early conditioning. Secure people don't tend to do that because they require reliability as the ground on which to build the relationship, whereas in the insecure and disorganized relationships, um, reliability is not really something that's been there. So it isn't a component that's uh, required. 
if you're a dismissing adult and you don't have a sensory clarity of the embodied sense of emotion and you don't have sensory clarity about uh, facial expressions and body language, then you need to learn that. And that's learnable, like all of these things. If you're preoccupied, then you need to turn your attention back to your own emotional experience and reorder it so that that's the dominant emotional experience and that the empathetic experience becomes secondary where it's supposed to be. And if you're disorganized, you, um, it depends on the constellation of the disorganization, but you may have to develop sensory clarity of what your emotions are you may have to reorient so that your uh, primary emotional experience is your own and you're going to need to learn emotional regulation skills that are uh, capable of uh, handling the uh, swings that might be there. If you um, remember the constellation of um, how we seek care um, the first thing an infant does to attract care is look as cute as they can and that if that doesn't work they look a little bit confused uh, and if that doesn't work then they uh, whimper if that doesn't work they intermittently cry. And if that doesn't work, they continuously cry. And if that doesn't work, they tantrum. And if that doesn't work, they fall off a cliff into anaclyptic depression, which is where they just shut down hard. Disorganized kids often have this last piece, which other people don't have. Right? Uh, if you have a, a, a childhood where you're neglected to the point that over and over again, your nervous system just shut down to conserve energy. It develops, your brain develops in a way that other, other people's brains don't. And so you need to then develop skills for coming out of anaclyptic depression, which other people would not have, have to do. So really is looking at what skills are in place and then how to begin to um, regulate them. We use a series of meditations called investigating self-generated emotion, stopping afflictive self-generated emotion, uh, equanimizing the pool of poison and pain to look at the, the aspect of emotional regulation that um, most people will use. So adults primarily regulate through thinking. Um, dismissing people may regulate through physical activity, competitive activity, rather than uh, thinking because they don't really have a conscious experience of the emotion. Um, but everybody else uses some form of thinking to do that. We learn in our family systems the thought processes that we use to regulate our emotions. And so we need to also use uh, have clarity of those. And so that's what we use the meditation for, to, to develop sensory clarity and the kind of thinking strategies that we use, and also uh, to develop uh, clarity of the emotional experiences that we have. 
so first is the basic training in discerning um, uh, the domains of sensory clarity that we need. That one of the reasons that I like Shinzen's uh, approach so much is that see here feel uh, when you use the focus in focus out strategy really gives you uh, a basis of clarity that you need uh, you don't need to go beyond that uh, to be able to do uh, the investigations that we would have follow that so we, uh, you would train and see here feel and then you would train in developing uh, clarity and the focus in focus out strategies and then uh, you would do the noting feeling states technique to um, to develop an embodied sense of emotion then move into uh, the investigation of the different emotional uh, regulation strategies that you use um, one of the things about meditation is, uh, and I think maybe our culture of impatience is that you need to have a, a result fast in order for uh, it to seem worthwhile doing that. So the, that structure that I just described to you is months of, of practice in order to be able to do that. And so I don't tend to teach it in that way anymore. I tend to teach the investigation part first, so that people can have a sense of uh, what the reward would be for doing it. And then once uh, you get past the beginning part of that, then go into developing the, the, the more industrial strength uh, um, technique that that's a Shinzen often call, calls his uh, techniques, industrial strength, meditation, as opposed to a household cleaner, if you get the metaphor. Um, <clears throat> one of the things about uh, practice is uh, it's not an on-off switch, really. Maybe a dimmer switch is a better thing. Uh, you start off and um, the the difference between a little practice and no practice at all is this huge leap. And then uh, then you have to put in the effort. Uh, and it's like a hockey puck in that sense is that you develop the skill and that skill lets you go a little bit deeper and a little bit deeper. And then all of a sudden, when the, the base skill is uh, developed enough, it really begins to take off. And how you know that is that the way that you respond to the experience of your life changes. Um, the self-experience, uh, ironically, doesn't change so much. Uh, but the way that what you do, that is to what the self observes you doing is uh, different, even though the experience of the self in coming up with what to do is the same. It's one of the, uh, the paradoxes of the sense of self. Since the self-experience is not the author or the generator of any of this, that's all unconscious. And the self is really just there to observe what you do. Uh, you see that you're doing things differently than you've ever done them before. But the experience of, of being the audience stays the same, if, if you can follow that. So in emotional regulation, 
noting feeling states technique is is uh, an amazing tool for really generating clarity uh, in terms of your moment by moment emotional reaction so you can begin to understand the intensity of the way that you respond to what's happening uh, we talk about this in four uh, basic uh, groups. First is the emotional reaction to the present moment, which plays out on the surface face, front of the throat, front of the torso, inside of the arms, inside of the legs. There's an emotional response. Really what emotions are is the body-mind getting ready to take an action in response to the conditions of the present moment. So if you're going to run away, the blood flows to the legs. There's a lot of adrenaline. Um, there's some endorphins so that you you can run through the, uh, the grass and get cut up without noticing it because you need to flee. If you need to fight, the blood all rushes into the upper body, into the arms, into the face. There's a lot of adrenaline, a lot of endorphins uh, so that you can stand and fight. Um, you feel joyful it's it's a, a, a it's an experience uh, really the one of the only ones that's over the whole body these patterns of um, experience so what we do uh, in that crucible of the dyadic relationship of the primary caregiver is we feel those sensations in our caregiver attunes to us connects to us empathetically and then tells us what's happening and reflects it in their face so we can identify the facial expression that's tied to that body sensation so that when, when uh, as adults we're in conversation with somebody and we feel that sensation in our body and uh, map it onto the facial expression of someone else we can identify our uh, empathetic experience of them is that making sense um, it is, uh, there is a safety valve built into the system so that if the system gets overwhelmed, uh, the, the emotional experience is dissociated and stored in the body. We call it somaticized emotional experience. And then that has the capacity to release if you pay attention to it. So present moment experience, self-generated emotion by thinking, uh, somaticized emotional experience and the empathetic experience of other people are the four that we work with. If you can't tell them apart, they can just clump together and produce a very intense emotional experience, which you don't, don't really, uh, can't really make sense out of. So we want to know what the emotional experience, the direct reaction to the present moment is. We want to be able to track our thought processes in response to that uh, and the emotional component of that thought process if we have somaticized emotion and it reacts to the present moment and releases emotional intensity we want to be able to separate that from the other two and then also have a clear picture of the empathetic experience of other people if you can do all of that then uh, i would say that you have good uh, clarity around your emotional experience and if you can't do all of that then uh, you need to practice in a way that uh, that sensory clarity develops and then the capacity for equanimity with those experiences develops. Now, if you don't have that, for instance, let's say there's a, a reaction of two level two sadness to the present moment. Uh, 
and that generates a thought process that adds another three points of sadness. Uh, and that resonates uh, with the pool of sadness, which releases another three. And then you react to the present moment as if the present moment contained eight points of sadness, when actually the present moment is actually only two points. And then people say, you're overreacting to this. And you're thinking, I'm not overreacting to this. This is what I'm feeling. But because you don't have clarity to understand the components of the feeling, you don't know that, oh, yeah, the present moment is only two points. And then if somebody tries to help you, they relieve the two points of sadness. They don't relieve the self-generated sadness. They don't relieve the somaticized experience of sadness. And so you can feel that they're not doing enough. They're not taking care of you well enough because they're not relieving um, the distress that you experience, uh, even though they've done everything that they can to relieve the distress, and they have relieved the distress that's associated with the present moment. Oh, that all making sense. The, the uh, other thing that you get out of really being able to uh, develop uh, a great capacity for emotional regulation is you can use it uh, to explore. You can really go out to the edge uh, and regulate the experience of that um, without having to limit the, the risk-taking to limit the emotional distress. And then um, you can also hold emotional space for the people close to you so that they can explore uh, to the edge of what they need to know to find meaning, knowing that even if they're completely demolished when they come rushing back to you, you have the space to emotionally regulate them. If you don't have the space uh, and they keep coming back and they're, they're more dysregulated than you have the capacity to regulate them, uh, we all tend to subtly try to talk them into limiting their exploration so that they don't exceed our capacity to uh, emotionally experience that. Um, and so then we are actually interfering with their capacity to explore rather than supporting it and encouraging it. And they may do the same for us because we come back in such a mess that they can't bring us back into balance. If you limit your exploration, of course, you limit the meaning that you find. And at a certain point, you can be in despair about the difficulty of life because you don't have enough meaning. Whereas if you had enough meaning, the difficulties of life wouldn't seem like such a big obstacle. So I thought that we would uh, do a little bit of noting feeling states technique tonight so that, that you can begin to have a sense of where you're at in terms of emotional regulation. Noting feeling states technique is where you track the moment by moment emotional experience in the body. So an embodied sense of emotion. Face, front of the throat, front of the torso, inside of the arms, inside of the legs. It's a vibratory energy. The first thing we need to do is discern whether it's emotional or not. 
And then the second thing we do is to try and define which emotional experience it is, understanding that it's perfectly ordinary to have emotional experiences which aren't clearly defined. But if you can recognize the name, the emotional experience and you have a name for it, you can label it by the name. So anger, fear, sadness, uh, excitement, I, I call that the basic four. Anger, fear, sadness, excitement. Um, uh, Paul Eckhart has a, a, a website, not an app, called Atlas of Emotions, which has all of the emotional experiences uh, that we have words for organized around seven primary emotions, anger, fear, sadness, disgust, uh, contempt, surprise, and happiness. Those are the seven that he thinks are universal. Um, so we're not trying to really uh, develop the nuance of these, it, just broad categories, anger, fear, sadness, um, good enough. You want to also come into equanimity with the experience of emotion so that we can tolerate the intensity of it. Um, and we also want to get good enough at it that we can take this out as a practice in life and use it as one of our uh, meditation-based emotional regulation strategies. The good thing about meditation-based strategies is they're not cognitive, so they don't collapse under stress. So they're, they're very, they have a real utility to them. Any, any thought-based emotional regulation strategies that you have don't survive even a moderate level of stress because your cognitive mind or your cognitive capacity to think diminishes so, so quickly. Um, so the procedural-based, like meditation-based uh, techniques are much better. If you don't know the name of the emotion, then, then uh, that's perfectly ordinary and that's just, we can label that something or don't know. Um, it's perfectly ordinary that there's no emotion in the body at a given moment. So we either label it the emotion with the name that we know it to be, we label it as something or don't know if there's emotional activity, but there's no clarity. If there's no emotion in the body, we label that as rest or none. Is that making sense? And then we'll do a few minutes of a concentration practice just to settle the mind. Brighten it up if we need to. So how did that go? Feeling tone was pretty quiet, a lot of neutrality. Good. Not much going on. It's a good thing. All right. Um, we are going to meet next week, but not the week after. And then the week after that, then the new year will start again. Uh, we have. Uh, a level one starting in January. We have a level two starting in February. We're doing another level three, a level one in March. We're doing a EU level one in April. 
we're going to start another level two, I think, in May. Uh, and then in September, we're going to start the first EU level two. I'm teaching a retreat in Utrecht in June. I want to come to Europe for a short retreat. Uh, so that's the first half of next year, what we're, we're planning. If you're interested in any of that, it's on the website. Take a look. Um, I offer this teaching freely, but I do hope that you'll make a donation. There's a link on the website to do it. Any amount is helpful. It supports me and also the work that we're doing. Um, really appreciate your practice. Thank you. And we'll see you uh, somewhere on the path, I hope, soon. Bye.